Um, I, I had a really, I have a really good um, earthly father. Um, my dad was uh, really good about keeping a lot of his promises. Like he would make promises to me about, you know, we, we would do certain things together. Go ride uh, motorcycles or go launch rockets in the Mesa or um, go play catch. And many times my dad followed through on those promises. He did what he said he was going to do, and I remember that. I relish that. I have memories of us doing these things together. Yet, there's lots of times where he said, hey, we're going to go do this, and then something would come up, something with work, something with else he wanted to do. He had hobbies himself, and sometimes those would get in the way and crowd out a promise that he made to, to me. Sometimes he would make a promise to my sister, and he would fulfill that promise and not fulfill the promise to me. Such it is with earthly fathers that we don't always keep our promises. And when those, the lack of keeping promises was more frequent, I would often grow cynical. Or when he showed favoritism in my mind to my sister, I would get uh, somewhat despondent. This is how it is with earthly dads. And so sometimes for me, like as a father who makes promises, is that like I can be a dad who overpromises and underdelivers. Like there's always a promise. Other dads are dads that underpromise and overdeliver, and sometimes we think that that's better. But here in our text this morning, what I want you at least to start off seeing is that God is always a God that both overpromises and always delivers. And this is the context as we kind of shift gears, moving out of Romans 8 into Romans 9 and the next three chapters, particularly 9 through 11. Right? This is how Paul ends uh, chapter 8. This is a God, Paul tells us, who keeps his promises. And he says, he, the, it begs the question for us, how do we know? Well, he did not spare his own son. How do you know that God is a God who will keep his promises because he offered his own son for us? That's how you know. But, but wait a second. Before we like rush headlong into that, what about 8.30? And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Here, Paul is working from this framework that God is going to do what he says. He's going to keep his Promises, But the question for Paul and the question for the gospel that Paul is proclaiming and a big question as we enter into this section of Romans is, has God's promise failed? Now, why would it fail? Well, look at the unbelief of Israel. This is one of the big questions of Paul's letter to Romans. What about the Jews? If they are a people of the promise, why have they rejected Jesus. Doesn't this throw a proverbial wrench in the whole Jesus project? If he predestined Israel to be his prized people in all the world, then will they actually be glorified Paul? Now, this is a theological question. What, like, what about Israel? But it's also an existential question. And Paul acknowledges this right away. Like in verse 2, we read here about Paul's grief. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish myself that I were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now, Paul is a Jew. He's an Israelite of 
Israelites. And this is an existential question for him. He is grieved of the heart that his brothers and his sisters do not believe in Jesus. What about my mom, my dad, my aunt, my uncle? What about my sister and my brother? What about the best friend I grew up with and went to school and temple with? Like, if you come from a family who is not a Christian family, or if you have a pe- people that you love that reject Jesus, a child who is turned away from Jesus, then you, at some part, know this anguish. Now, you might try to minimize it or justify it or ignore it, but Paul here has unpacked the good news, which is the good news, by the way. He said that if you are in Christ, then nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Not tribulation, not distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, not life, not death, not angels, not rulers, not things present, not things to come, not powers, not height, nor depth. There's nothing in all creation, Paul says, that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. This is the gospel. This is the good news because Jesus did not spare his own son because Jesus is Messiah, because he's the anointed one sent from God, the promised one of all ages, because he died on a cross There can be no separation between you and God. And this is good news for both Jew and Gentile alike. They are both equally, desperately in need of a Messiah, a Savior, and a friend. So what about my family who doesn't believe this? What about my whole neighborhood, Paul, who once I start spouting off about a crucified Messiah, start raining down curse words upon me? Paul is a Jew. He's deeply affected by his fellow people's rejection of Jesus. They are still his brothers, his tribe, his people. I would be cut off, he said, or accursed. I would rather be banished and separated. Now think about that based on what he just said about the one who can't be separated, that he is willing to be separated for his family. Paul is not wrangling with theology off in some ivory tower. His heart is literally torn in two. He's wrestling with this. And a corollary question could develop. If God cancels his promises to Israel because of their hardness of heart, might he do the same to us as Christians? And so what Paul is trying to unpack here, he's under attack, he says, I speak the truth. The gospel I'm proclaiming is true, confirmed by the Holy Spirit. So Paul here wants to do two things, two things which are hard to put together. He wants to affirm passionately that God really did choose the Jews and equip them to be a people for his world. And he wants to affirm equally, passionately, that Jesus really was and is Israel's Messiah. Indeed, the second depends on the first. Unless you believe in God's unique call to Israel, you miss the point of believing in Messiah altogether. The Messiah comes, as Paul hints, by putting him at the climax of the list of Israel's privileges in verses 4 and 5 as the culmination of God's work in line with all the privileges and promises of old. 
So this means for Paul emotional turmoil. His people don't believe the good news. The good news that he himself is preaching, his family, his friends, his mentors. What will happen to them if they continue to ignore the signs? He is desperate. He is grieved. He prays. He can't forget there are so many that he loves that are blind to the news that he's preaching. Now, remember in Romans chapter 2, the law privileged Israel, but that privilege was for them to see Jesus. And they aren't currently, as a whole, as a group, seeing and believing in Jesus. It hasn't privileged them to just be a nation with power and position. Like they weren't privileged with this news to be a mighty nation with power. It hasn't privileged them. They weren't privileged with this news so they could be self-righteous, like in both being right and having access to what's right, especially in in contrast to the nations that don't. They are not pagan. They are moral and civilized and ordered. That's not why they've been privileged to see the difference, especially in contrast to these nations. They, what's vital for Israel to see and not miss is what Paul is feeling, is that he sees that Jesus is being rejected, and that means separation from all they were meant to be. They weren't meant to just be morally superior, a morally superior older brother. They weren't meant to be a smaller nation, geopolitical world powerhouse. They were meant to be a nation from which all the promises of God would be fulfilled in Jesus. And they were meant to see that. Their humility and their need of this gift of abounding grace that met Israel while they were an enslaved people and carried them along to a land and a place where they would be a light to other nations who would see Jesus through them. But they assumed upon that grace, thinking it was them and not and their election and not God. Like there was something about them and their election to this place to be the bearer of God's promises instead about the God who keeps his promises. And this is what Paul is having to endure. He has the good news that's the gift of God's grace, this promise that has been given to Israel so that the nations of the earth might be blessed, not by securing Israel on the world stage as the most righteous nation on earth, but by bringing forth from them Jesus who will bless not just Israel, but everyone else through Israel the whole world, that they might be blessed and rescued from sin and death and the devil through a crucified Savior. But Israel is ashamed of a crucified Savior. They're blind to the work of God in such an event. And so Paul is most grieved, even as he is most determined and dogged to proclaim this truth, this news, to those who have been blinded to it. Now, let's internalize this for a second. Now, in this church that Paul is writing this letter, this church in Rome, here's the deal. The church is a mixed-race church. There's Gentiles, non-Jews, and there's Jews. And this church has experienced trauma. Remember, this church was started in these Roman apartments on the outskirts of the city, 
The church began with Jews, Jews who heard Peter preach at Pentecost, who believed the news about King Jesus and received the Holy Spirit. These Jews were then scattered. They left Jerusalem, and some returned to Rome. Some end up there. Some are new converts to Jesus. Some who are now in Rome were converted there because of the ministry of the apostles and the eyewitness accounts of the resurrected Jesus. They were saved because of the hospitality of their friends and their neighbors. These same Jews were then scattered again. In Rome, these Jews were displaced They were sent out of the city by the declaration of the emperor. So they left the church that they loved, the place where they were cared for, the place where they heard about Jesus, a church that they saw during their time in Rome convert Gentiles. They sat and watched their Gentile neighbors be baptized into the way of Jesus, rich and poor alike. And now they leave a church where they were leading these men and women and children from all over the world into the way. And after a few years of being banished, they now return. And the church has changed. The Gentile converts are now leading the church. The church has grown. And they step back into a setting and church family that is very different. And many, not many, most of their Jewish family and friends, who they still celebrate all the Jewish feasts and festivals with, reject Jesus and don't understand how they can now be brothers and sisters with the like of Gentiles, that they actually call them family too. And here's the rub for these friends and family is how can we believe this? Like the rub then is, is an apologetic for Paul's preaching. How can these Jews who have all this, the law of the prophets, Like, look at the list here. Look at verses 4 and 5. To the Israelites belong adoption. This refers back to Exodus 4, 22, where Israel is called God's firstborn firstborn son. The glory. Israel beheld God's glory. First, Moses at the burning bush. Then in the rescue and travels through the wilderness. And at Sinai, they saw the pillar of smoke and fire, the visible manifestation of his presence. Exodus 24.10, they saw the God of Israel. They have the covenants. This refers to the way God made relationship with his people, the covenant with Abraham. Genesis 15, 17, you will be my people, I will be your God. Then through Moses and David, in each case, God creates and sustains relationship with Israel, promises to bless them and through them bless others. The giving of the law refers to God giving the commandments at Sinai, re-ratifying them on the plains of Moab. These commandments were meant to humble God's people, showing them that no one could keep the law that they would have to look to God to provide for them. The worship in the tabernacle and temple, the people were shown how they could have a relationship with God. Blood sacrifice was given uh, for atonement of sins. The priest would provide these sacrifices for God, before God, for the people. The promises, they're, they're given to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and Moses, and David, and others, all pointing to the coming of Messiah. Israel has all of this, and yet, They reject Jesus. So this goes back to Paul's question, his grief. Has God's promise to Israel failed? And if the promise to Israel has failed, then does this nullify all that Paul's talking about? You see, Paul's writing this letter 
for this very purpose to this church comprised of Gentiles and Jews. And the questions swirling about in the trial that Paul himself is enduring. My mom and dad don't believe this stuff about Jesus. And if they don't believe it, and they are Jews elected by God to carry these truths along, then is it really true, Paul? Is it really worth believing? Is it worth all this struggle, struggle in our church, struggle in our family, struggle in my life? Has the word of God failed? That's what's at stake here in Romans 9. And it is the main impetus of this book. Like Paul is giving an apologetic for why to believe the gospel. Why it's true. Why it can't be based on circumstance or on man's response. And to this, has God's word failed? Paul says, no. God's faithfulness and mercy guide this. So what, how does Paul answer this? What's his apologetic to this question? Has God's promise failed because Israel is not believing the gospel? He says, first, not all Israel is Israel. Paul wants to say, we must define Israel properly. Not all children of Abraham are his offspring. There is an ethnic Israel, and then there is an Israel of God. Now that term Israel of God comes from Paul's letter to Galatians in 6.16. But what Paul is saying is that there is a true Israel inside the nominal nation state of Israel. There is a true Israel that is carried along by the promises of God. That doesn't mean that all who are Israel believe the promise. Some are chosen to believe even as some are passed over in not believing. Paul says, let's look at these promises carefully. And then he gives two examples. The first example is the sons of Abraham. Now, we've talked about this already, both in Romans earlier in the book, but also in Genesis. Abraham is the father of many nations, but two sons in particular embody this example. Abraham's firstborn, although not named in our passage, born from Sarah's handmaiden, Hagar. Remember, Abraham is old. Sarah is old. They have been given this promise. I will give you offspring by which the whole nations of the world will be blessed. So they think, well, Sarah's old. In fact, she's, she's past childbearing age. She's too old to have a child. So the custom would be to have another woman provide a child. So they think, this must be the way God intends to bless me and bless the world. So Hagar has a son. The son's name is Ishmael. And God says, no, this is not how I intend to fulfill the promise. I will be, he says, the one to visit you, and I will supernaturally enable you in your old age to have a child and nurse a child. And then comes Isaac, the secondborn. This is who God chooses to enact his promise. He will fulfill his plan of salvation through the seed. Ishmael was a natural child. Isaac was the child of the promise. Now what constitutes Israel is not biological, but supernatural. And this is the point of verse 9. For this is what the promise said about this time next year. I, God, will return and Sarah will have a son. 
You see, the key is the gospel, the promise. It's not the blood, but the promise. It's God's divine decree and enacting the promise. Ishmael isn't rejected because of failure, and Isaac isn't chosen because of virtue, but because of God's sovereign mercy. Again, this is what is so challenging about Paul's news. God is a God who gives his gift of grace incongruently. It is a gift given to the unworthy. And God, in mercy, elects Isaac. Now, some will conclude because Isaac is the natural son of Abraham and Sarah. So Paul gives a second example. Rebekah has twins, Esau and Jacob. Esau is the older Jacob is the younger, and Paul says God made his choice of Jacob before they were born. While they were still in the womb and before they had done anything good or bad, before they had merited anything, or before they knew how, uh, before anybody knew how this whole thing would turn out, God chose the younger. It isn't about what God foresees that prompts the choice. It is just God's mercy. If God chose Jacob before he demonstrated any worthiness, then certainly God's election was not by works, but by him who calls, Paul says. It is God's merciful decree, not merit. Jacob becomes Israel, and Esau becomes Eden, not because of failure, but because of God's will. One does not become a son of God and an heir of the promise by descent or ethnicity or by might or by heritage or even by a parent's faithfulness. It is only by the gracious election of God. The reason God chooses Jacob and rejects Esau is not because God is arbitrary or unjust, but because God wills for his eternal purpose, Paul says, to stand. Now, the Greek word here for stand means to remain, to endure, thus relieving any anxiety from verse 6 that God's word might have failed. Paul says, so that election might stand. So that verse uh, verse 28 of chapter 8, that those who are called according to his purpose, that they might endure, that they might stand, what God has ordained before the foundation of the world, that it might stand and then be executed in history. God wills for his eternal purposes to stand, to remain, to endure, so that his word will not fail. God chooses Israel as the least, the little brother, for his pur- so his purposes might stand, that his word would not fail. The reasons for God's election are not in us, but rest solely in God. It is God's purpose and not ours. It is God's ways and God's reasons, not ours. Isaiah 55, 8, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. The mystery of God's purpose is not cause for anxiety or terror, but confidence that God is for us, that God's election is God being for us. It gives us the assurance that God's purpose in election might stand. Now, how do we know this? Well, we see it fulfilled in Jesus. Like, Election paves the way for Christ, and Christ paves the way for us. He is a light to the nations. We sit here in this room, all of us, most of us, we are Gentiles. We are cut off outside of the covenant. 
but God engrafts us in because of Christ. Election paves the way for Christ to be the Savior of the nations. We are the nations that Jesus saves. And this is grace. Like, Paul has unpacked through the whole book that both Israel and Gentile, Jew and Gentile, are sinners alike. And so it's unmerited gift and favor at all that anyone would be saved. It's mercy. We are all turning away. And so God's pure mercy comes to us and visits Israel and then the Gentile. And this is rest. Like if it is grace and mercy and it's outside of us entirely and it rests fully on God, we can rest. I like how Esau Macaulay says this. He says, rest is is affirmation in the sovereignty of God. He doesn't sleep or slumber, so we can. Sabbath keeping is a physical manifestation of salvation by grace. It's an act of resistance against the lie that we are only what we create and accomplish, and I would add what we merit. Election is the backbone to the gift of grace that Paul preaches. The gift is never merited. It's always given. And Paul says, no one is worthy. All have sinned. Both Jew and Gentile have fallen short. So God elects Israel to bring forth, verse 5, the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. And so, friends, when we talk about predestination, election, we wonder, well, if I am chosen, but they aren't, is this fair? And this is going to be worked out in the chapters to come. I want to kind of center here on Israel. But I mean, Paul is begging this question, right? He says, the older will serve the younger. It is Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, this isn't emotional. Like, he isn't just, it isn't about hate in that sense, like an emotional uh, uh, response. It's choosing one over the other. Jesus will say of his family uh, in, in one of the Gospels versus, you know, you need to follow me. And you need to follow me to such a degree that you hate your brother and your mother and your sister. He doesn't literally mean hate your parents, but it's an idiom for saying choosing them, Jesus, over them. God chose Jacob above Esau, and Jacob receives the promise of God because of God's gracious choice. If God does not elect, there is none that choose. It is only God's sovereign decree and will all throughout Scripture. God enacts his decrees by his free and sovereign engagement to save his people. If Jesus is in the world, he's electing believers in grace, equipping them by his spirit for his saving purposes in the world. God chooses within history Jacob over Esau to serve those ends. And the destiny of all things lies solely with the God who is perfect in love and justice. Predestination then could be said to have this ripple effect like a stone or a pebble thrown in a lake or a pool. God intervenes in history and extends his intervention out in ever-widening circles. And so here Paul says God elects Isaac and not Esau, Israel and not Edom, for his promise to be carried along, that it will lead to Christ, who will enact salvation for all who believe. And here in the first part of Romans 9, this is God's will. And the story of Romans, the story that they're living, is the Gentiles are being engrafted into the story. God is moving and working through the Gentiles, and Paul is leading us along this arc. 
that Jewish rejection of the gospel at this point in history is that the Gentiles are being brought in. And this Roman church is seeing this lived out in living color. Paul is living it out. But Jewish rejection does not mean the promise has failed. It means the promise is widening. The ark is widening and including more and more who will believe. And all of it, all of it is based on God's gift, his grace, his mercy to all who are undeserving, which we all are. And if our eyes are open to this reality, then we are receivers of God's grace and mercy. And our response to being a receiver of God's grace and mercy is to receive it and rest. And this is confirmation of our election that he who did not spare his own son for us will freely give us all things. Now, these next several weeks, like as we dive into this, like these things are difficult. Like again, this is Paul's like the, the crux of his argument that he wants us to see that divine election is a grace to us because it brings forth Christ and it opens our eyes so that we can see that same Christ. It is because God's electing love that Christ has been brought forth in the world as the Savior of sinners, which we all are. And it is God's electing love that opens all of our eyes to see that Savior so that we can rest and receive, so that we can stop striving, so we can stop thinking that it's about our merits, that it does truly rest on the work of Christ alone and our receiving that gift opening our hands and saying, praise be to God that he's opened my eyes to see Jesus. It is a testimony to the promise of God enduring and being given to me years after Jesus has come. So I want to just say three things as we close, three responses. The first is gratitude. Like whenever we talk about election or predestination, the, it should humble us that there was nothing in of uh, ourselves that precluded God to be merciful to us. It was his free and sovereign choice that he did so. And it is to open us up to be, being grateful, grateful that we've received the gift, not in any way pride, proud that we've received the gift, proud that somehow we brought something of our knowledge to the situation. It was only God preaching to us and opening our eyes and hearts to receive that preached word that we might then respond and rest on Jesus for salvation, as he's offered to us in the gospel. Grateful that God would do that for me, because I don't deserve it. Second, grief. Like, there should be a level of grief. We are not, as Presbyterians have been called, the frozen chosen. Like, truly, we have been brought into this story. We exist on this earth to share the good news that Paul is sharing with us today through the book of Romans. That that is why we have been created. That's why we continue to walk this earth. Both through our work and our witness, we are called to bring forth, manifest the gospel wherever we go. And we should be grieved greatly that there are still many around us who do not believe that there are members of our very family who are rejecting that Jesus is the Christ, 
that Jesus is the way, that Jesus has somehow come to me in the places of my deepest need and accepted me and loved me and set my feet on a rock when my life was nothing but sifting sand. And so we're grieved that others might not know. And then gospel. So in those two places of gratitude and grief, we preach the gospel to ourselves and to others. The response to hearing about God's election of true Israel, the Israel of God, the church, and all who have believed in Messiah throughout all of history is to preach that gospel again to us. We need to remember that the gift of God's grace is unmerited. We did nothing. We just receive it. And we tell that to others. And so we are the most, the most, the most humble because of God's electing grace. That story is going to be told multiple different ways over the next several weeks. And so, like, I encourage you to, like, grapple in. Like, Paul's going to use different, you know, stories and tones and ways of t- retelling the story. And he's going to call you again and again to believe the gospel and to preach the gospel. And that is our call at City Press. We are to be a church that has a faithful presence of proclaiming God's love for our city and world. Amen. Let's pray. God, we uh, come before you this morning and know like this, uh, these words are complicated at times and hard and yet also so full of beauty and wonder and grace that God, you would visit us in such a way through stories told long ago that you would keep your promises even to us, that you are that kind of father, that we can trust that you keep your word to us because you did not spare your own son because we have heard the good news that you will continue to meet us in the places of our deepest needs and deliver us and save us and that we just rejoice in that this morning. That's the kind of father you are. So I pray that we would trust you and trust your word even though we can't always connect the dots and even though some of these things are set in decrees made in eternity, we wouldn't get lost. That we would remember that your election is good for us and good for the world because it gave us Jesus. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.